Hello and welcome to Writers Aloud, the podcast about writing from the Royal Literary Fund. This episode is devoted to an interview with award-winning poet John Greening. In addition to having been a Royal Literary Fund fellow and carried out numerous interviews for this podcast over the years, Greening has edited various collections of other poets' verse and written studies of the work of many more, including several of the First World War poets and Ted Hughes. He is also a long-standing poetry reviewer and critic for the Times Literary Supplement. In the following conversation with Caroline Sanderson, he started out by explaining how he discovered that poetry represented the heartland of his writing. Yes, it's curious, isn't it? It's a curious thing to have ended up doing, really. But at the same time, poetry is one of the the first things we encounter when we're young, I think. Those nursery rhymes and so on. And looking back, there were a lot of those. There was a lot of my mother played the piano, so there was a lot of singing around the piano. So I think some of the lyrics of those songs went in. And I remember being fascinated by things like Bellock's cautionary tales and things like that. And I used to... I used to make up little rhymes when I was quite young. But where it all comes from, who knows? People have written long, worthy tomes on the subject of where the interest in poetry comes from. But it's connected with with sound, I think, and and, and music. Uh, I love music. And uh, even now, I think I respond to the sound of a poem first. And then what it means comes afterwards. Mm. Well, we think sometimes... Perhaps those of us who don't write poetry think, oh, that's a very particular thing to be. But I heard you say in in a piece you recorded that being a poet is rather like a traffic island. It's a sort of focal point where all kinds of genres sort of converge, like your sort of open-sided vehicle. Yes, you you have to be... state of inspiration is what the romantic would have called it. You have to be in a kind of receptive state to write a poem. The poem has to come to you, really. And I think poems probably come to, to many people, perhaps to most people, but they just ignore what's there. It's a case of being ready for it and writing it down. So you are you're a receiving piece of receiving equipment, maybe. So you have to, to have, have that constant state of awareness. Of course, you can't always have that state of awareness because you have to live your life uh, and you have to teach whatever it is you do. But it is being attuned to the world, to the coincidences within the world very often the way one thing connects with another in an interesting or exciting way. I love synchronicities, um, and I'm always on the, on the lookout for them. But sometimes you, you don't know they're there, and you never know what you're going to write about. We went to a Gilbert Sullivan concert in a local church the other night, and I ended up writing a poem about that, though it wasn't really about that. I started writing about, about it because it, it clicked with something I remember from my childhood. It turned into something I hadn't expected at all. So you never know what's going to start uh, the poem at all. But you've got to be ready for when it does come. And then when you start the poem, it can turn into something else entirely, I guess. It can. And you've got to to judge that. It's so easy to say, no, no, I want this to be a poem about the flower bed. But the poem says, no, it's going to be a poem about your great-grandmother. So you've got to, I suppose, like riding a horse or something, you've got to give it a bit and, and pull it back. The other thing is the form, you know, what form is it going to be? You say, no, I want to write a sonnet, but the poem may decide, no, this is going to be free verse. So you've got to keep all those things under control. And that is why it is such fun for the writer. Anyway, I don't know about the reader. I can't speak for the reader, but it's fun to write. 
Well, there are so many forms available to poets, aren't there? There are all these sort of, even even if you follow the verse structures, which of course you don't have to, but, uh, you know, I guess those structures sort of corral, but they also um, challenge your word wrangling. Um, do you, I mean, do you find as a poet that there are forms that particularly suit you? I mean, I, I note from, from um, reading your work that, it's hugely diverse in terms of the way that it arrives on the page. Yeah, I think many poets have a default form. Very often if I'm writing the ideas of a poem down to begin with, it'll be little three-line verses, what are called tercets. And, but it's easy to get stuck in that. Similarly with a sonnet. The sonnet can be um, a rather tyrannical form <laughs> and it could take you over. So you, you sometimes that's fine, you go with it, but, but you've got to be aware of what, that you're not repeating yourself you're not just um doing the conventional thing so as with all the other points i was making you've got to got to keep that freedom uh and, and not just repeat what you you know you can do because you you want to dis- it's a process of discovery so you're discovering what the language can do as well as what what whatever it is the poem is trying to tell you about yourself or about life and the two go hand in hand. So very often a new form, a discovery of a new form, will be because you're trying to say something new. But when you're in your late 60s, of course, that's, that's more of a challenge. But I always remind myself that, that W.B. Yeats started doing extraordinary new things when he was in his late 60s. So. Well, yes, your, your most recent collection, The Silence, um, which uh, The Silence refers to the composer Sibelius and the silence in terms of his composing for I think the last thirty years of his life, so the silence is a is is a very long poem. I think it's twelve hundred lines. Is that right? Something I think like it's, that. It started off that long, and it may be less than that now. But because at one point I realised it was too long, too long to publish, and there was one afternoon having worried at this for for weeks and weeks. Suddenly there was that sort of a moment when I was able to just dispassionately look at what I'd written and go through with a pencil and cross out vast swathes of what I'd written, because I knew it had to happen. But again, you've got this, the moment has got to arrive, it's got to be the right mood for you, to, for you to be able to do that. And cutting stuff out is the most important thing for any writer, I think, being able to, to cut. It's a strange thing to say, that, but, but it's perhaps the most important element of creativity, I think. Oh, um, uh, yeah, it's the editing process. I mean, mm, I think we, yeah. we all emphasise that as, yeah, yeah. as writers, don't we? That, that, that's where it really happens in the editing yeah, a lot yeah. of the time. But I think maybe I, maybe I had a preconception that because, you know, poetry can and often is a kind of, you know, quite a, a precede form in itself, mm-hmm. that the idea of cutting, you know, lots of lines hadn't sort of occurred to me. But yeah. clearly that's something that you've had to do. It is. Occasion. And it's... A very Sibelian thing, actually. I mean, put long poems about Sibelius, and he himself was famous for, for his self-criticism and for also for cutting, 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 and never being satisfied with what with what he'd written. So it seemed to be an appropriate uh, sort of aesthetic approach, really. Yes, there's a line in the poem where you, where you say self-criticism. That's what it comes down to: knowing where to make the cut, having the courage to leave something out, and an instinct for the buried seed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's sort of a compound character in the poem. It's partly about me, I suppose. But that poem is really about the creative process of any, any artist, the compound creative artist in, in, in the silence. Mm. Well, so that's that's your most recent collection. Yes. I wanted to talk about 
a book of prose, Threading a Dream, a Poet on the Nile, which is which is a memoir in, interspersed with poetry. It's a memoir inspired by your time in Egypt, late 70s, early 80s, where you went with your wife to as a VSO volunteer to teach. And Egypt's such a recurring presence in your poetry. So I, I was really interested to talk to you about why going to Egypt was such a formative experience. I suppose it would be for anybody <laughs> at that age. But it seems to be where your poetry started to happen. Yes, it certainly was. I mean, I'd been writing for, for years before we went. We went in 1979, so I was in my mid-20s. We went as a teaching couple. And I'd been writing about this, that and the other, but I... I don't. I never quite found my voice, and yes, as you say, somewhere like Egypt, you you, you couldn't fail really to be moved to 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 write about it. But it did seem to me, I had unearthed something. I found a way of writing that was satisfactory to me. Again, it's that doubleness that I keep coming back to. The, my first collection, which was all about Egypt, it was the poems I wrote there. That's Westerners. Westerners. Yes. Uh, and the title of that is because we were Westerners. But for the ancient Egyptians, the Westerners were the dead because they were buried on the west bank of the Nile. So that kind of doubleness which, which fascinated me and, and runs through the whole whole collection. And perhaps that's what it was that set me off on, on, on the way forward as a writer. But yeah, I come back to Egypt again and again. And Threading a Dream, was I wrote 2011, I think I started it. And it's sort of a mixture of verse and, and prose. It was wonderful to return to it. I've, we've never been back, actually. We never went back to, to mm. Egypt at all. But I've been back in my head many times. Mm. Mm. But maybe it's something... I, I know um, you had had some correspondence with Ted Hughes, I think, yes. before you went. And he'd said, uh, you have to live, I think, a bit uncomfortably... As if that 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 was had to be there had to be that sort of spur. I think that was probably at the back of my mind. Um, the rest of his advice I spectacularly ignored. He said, uh, "Don't become a teacher in a closed situation." You know, which I, <laughs> but then you can't all be like Ted Hughes. He was a fairly, fairly sort of wildlife he he led, um, and very hugely successful, of course. But yeah, he, it was a formative period, extraordinary, extraordinarily happy time too. And you couldn't stop the poems coming, really. Uh, I just wrote them wherever we were. Didn't have a camera. And I sort of took what I think Edward Morgan called instamatic poems, sort of just snapshots. Mm. Uh, uh, very, very free verse. I, I was reading a lot of the American imagists, not only Americans, but and people like William Carlos Williams. And that, I think, influenced uh, the way I was writing lots of short lines, which I tend not to do these days at all. Yeah, I don't know much about poetry apart from I remember at school doing the Red Wheelbarrow. Oh, yeah, William indeed. Carlos Williams. That's it. Yeah, so that what? gives me the little feel of what. Yeah, that, yeah he looks an, an object and and uh, writes about it, which is what I was doing in Egypt, really. You know, look at yes. a shadoof uh, or these sort of, these wonderful things along the Nile, and you write about it as yes. it is. So we've talked about Egypt a little bit, and a sense of place and of surroundings also feels important to your work and and not least the Huntingdonshire countryside where where you live I think that sense of place inspires so many poets doesn't it I wonder if it's something to do because certainly when you're writing about Egypt there's all these layers of history and they're they're obviously literally being excavated by archaeologists but it feels that when you when you write about the countryside that you know that you've you're now and have been for a few decades living in that that it's 
about layers of history there as yes, well. Yes, yes, it is. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like it here and why we've stayed here, because it's it's a very unspectacular place to live, Cambridgeshire, or Huntingdonshire, as I like to think of it. But, yeah, the layers are there. Extraordinary numbers of, of, of things have happened around here, from the Civil War period, for example. A lot of famous poets have lived around here. John Donne passed through, Dryden was up the road, uh, Cooper just in Huntingdon. So lots of literary associations as well. And a place of significant soil, as Eliot called it. I mean, Little Gidding is just... I cycle to Little Gidding every now and then. So a place where where significant things have happened to feel that, that there's something going on. But also, not many people have actually written about it. So that's... Whereas if you're in the Lake District or something, I mean, how do you write about that? Because it's all been done before. So it's suited me, uh, and I've written about it a lot. I think I am a poet of place. I'd like to write about people more and better, but I'm a poet of place, essentially, and um, this is one of the places that I've ended up writing mm. about a lot. And and you sort of collected poems, uh, Hunts. It mm. is called Hunts. Mm. Poems, 1979 to 2009, and Hunts having that sort of double meaning as yeah. being okay. short for hump, hunting shinshira. Yeah. But there's also lots and of... other hunts. Other hunts going on in, in the book as well. There's a hunt for a penguin's egg, uh, Captain Scott's expedition, and, and hunting for this, that, and the other. Yes, so again, the double meanings. Music is also a thread that runs through your work. Uh, we've, we've talked about your most recent collection, The Silence. Its title poem is a meditation on Sibelius and the 30 years he spent grappling with his Eighth Symphony. But there's also mentions of um, Holst and Schubert and many other composers. So I'm assuming that music is very important to you. And it makes me think about the relationship between music and poetry the music that you write about doesn't seem to be that with song in it so it's not a question of song and lyric but more to do with the the sounds i guess mm. yes it's a tricky relationship isn't it between the, the, the two art forms and poets are not necessarily musical i mean yates for example the book was completely tone deaf but they meet at, at some they meet somewhere i think um music and and poetry I do write about music a lot and I think my love of music does inform my appreciation of poetry but quite how that works I don't, I don't know mm. um, I also edited an anthology of, of other people's poems about music because I think poets have written a lot about music in the old days it used to be the composers were inspired by great poems like Byron's and so on but, but these days it's the other way around I think and who are the fellow poets whose work you're, you're most drawn to and why? We're sitting in your wonderful writing cabin and the, the, the walls are lined with alphabetical volumes of poetry. So it, it looks as if you're, you know, your inspiration, well, you, certainly your reading is wide and vast. It's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah, just because I have the books there doesn't mean say I've read them, though I have, in fact, read most of them. Um, <laughs> some are review copies. You mean living poets, poets who are, are influenced by... Oh, it's... It, Changes every day almost. There are certain poets that I return to in, in, in terms of reading. Poets like Charles Tomlinson, Anne Stevenson. Yes. Um, Louise Gluck I'm very fond of. Very, very pleased when she won the Nobel Prize. That was well deserved. Mm. Les Murray, who visited us here, in fact, because he read, read The Castle. So that was quite a thrill. So different poets, different days. I, and I have Catholic tastes. So I, I, and I'm aware also that you shouldn't just read the work from your own time. So every now and then I'll dip into the Elizabethans or, or even earlier or look at some Jonathan Swift or, or read some Matthew Arnold. Yeah. Uh, and I, I read 
criticism as well. And there's, there's all those novels and plays one's supposed to read as well. Not to mention all the other languages. I've been translating some Goethe. I've got a little volume of some Goethe translations coming out later in the year. So try and do something new. Try and keep it um, keep it on the move. Yes, we should have mentioned your translations as well, because mm. that's another string to your bow, isn't it? Well, yes. As long as nobody makes me speak German, it's fine. <laughs> But I suppose going back to poets, reading contemporary poets, it it all informs the present, doesn't it? It's uh, it's never-ending cycle. I learnt the acronym the other day, Babel, Book Acquisition Beyond Life Expectancy. Well, that's me. <laughs> I think we all sort of <laughs> <done> that. <laughs> when you're reviewing poetry, mm. what are you judging, in inverted commas? It's, to what extent is it a personal response and to what extent can we judge that something is a is successful because i know you're you're judge for the um gregory yeah well, i was for well. many years yeah. yeah yeah it's one would like to say it's an objective um, thing but and there's some some of it is objective you can say well can this person actually write a coherent sentence have they noticed that the line break is an important element in a poem for example have they thought about the way that word sounds with that word so those are things that which you can we can all agree on but in the end, I think, and, and this is probably a terribly arrogant thing to say, but, but it's basically because I've read a lot of poetry in my life, so I sort of have a sense of what, what it should be like, which is, which is very hard to, to define. You get an instinct for it in the end. We all advise writers, would-be writers, to read a lot, so that, that's the way you, you, come, you come to understand it. Mm. Um, but there are things, yeah, you can say, well, if, if you're trying to write a sonnet, then... Why is it you've you've not got the balance between the the, the eight and the and the the six quite correct and, and things like that? There, there are objective aspects to it. It's a mystery in the end. <laughs> so, which is, uh, I would make a lot of money if I knew what it was that uh, made made a great poem. Of course, and and I mean, it, it, a lot of the writing business is a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Which is why it's so hard sometimes to advise other people or or even to teach it but then you you have you have taught and I wondered if as a writer I've written a lot but I've never written poetry Mm. are there starting points once the process starts and I think this is probably true for beginners as for experienced poets once the process starts it carries you with it you've got to be a bit of an obsessive to be a poet you've got to say I want to get that absolutely right. And you may not know quite what it is you want to get right. So you've got to put the hours in. You've got to enjoy tinkering around with with the, the words on the page and not be too dogged about saying this is what this poem's going to be about, as I said earlier. If you want to start writing poetry, start with something something simple. Just Just look hard at something near you, something unfamiliar or something familiar. Just go and stare at a a milestone or go and look at a, a you know a, a rose in the garden just look at it very hard and words should start to come to you and then you play around with the words and see where it's going to take you and as I, I always say it won't necessarily be what you thought it was going to be about but yeah you've got to read lots of other people as well and you'll end up sound you'll start off sounding like another poet probably that doesn't matter you work your way through that shouldn't be too hung up on, on being plagiarists or whatever. It's not plagiarism to, to 
to be influenced by another writer. And that has happened through the ages that the artists have acknowledged and, and used earlier material. So we draw on each other's work. It's a, it's a conversation down through the ages, really, really, poetry. I was going to say that, actually, in relation to your work. It often does feel like that because you do reference... You do reference other poets quite often in your work, mm. as if there is a conversation going on. Yes, and uh, in a way that I'm sure Philip Larkin would have hated, because he always got very impatient with people who name-dropped other poets. But it, it's that sense of of conversing with others. Like one of my the book before the silence was called "To the War Poets," and it was a series of verse letters to to the poets of the First World War. And I was chatting to them, perhaps rather presumptuously, but. I was chatting to them as one might chat to a fellow poet on Facebook. It was sort of like poems addressed to them. So in that sense, it was a real conversation. Uh, you chat about the art, you chat about your preoccupations. Yeah, poetry's connection. Yes. All interesting things to think about if you're, if you're just starting to write poetry. And, of course, that's what happened to you in Egypt, by the sound of it. You were looking at objects hard because everything was new and strange yes yes and that's what made it happen and all you can do is just look with, with awe and try and take it in so how my way of taking something in you see the pyramids we've all seen the pyramids pictures of the pyramids so many times we're not actually standing before the pyramids you can barely cope with it well my way of coping with it is to write a poem about it and then it sort of somehow makes it process of digesting what you're seeing there's a wonderful quote in the introduction to threading a dream which is your memoir of, of egypt a poet on the nile it's really struck me because you were uh, you and your wife were in upper egypt in aswan which is famous for the dam of course and you write i believe there are deep turbines whose extraordinary output we may never even notice but poetry is capable of driving them and i thought wow so I want to ask you what about that quote and also what can poetry do uniquely? I think for me, and I don't read enough poetry, but I know what poetry does do for me is that I'm a very fast reader. I have to read a lot very quickly. But poetry won't let you do that. You have to slow down. And I think in the lives that we all live in the 21st century, that, that's slowing down. So poetry is for me, partly about slow reading because it forces that. But what about these deep turbines? Well, that's the, you're, you're absolutely right about the, the slowing down. And you're slowing yourself down so much you're seeing into the depths of the words of the poem. The turbines are to do with that mystery and something spiritual, actually. I mean, prayer and poetry are, you know, are quite closely allied. I'm not a sort of conventionally religious person, but I'm I'm a spiritual person and I understand what prayer is about, I think. And poetry touches on some of the same zones, I think. So those deep turbines I mentioned, yeah, it's it's the power, something generating power, whatever it is that's um that, that Wordsworth felt in when he was walking in the Lake District, I suppose. And I sometimes feel when I'm walking amongst the uh, the empty fields of Cambridgeshire. Uh, so that was a that was a handy metaphor, uh, the high dam in uh, in Aswan, and metaphor is what it all comes down to. And it drives me mad to hear politicians abusing metaphors every day of our lives, uh, not really listening to the words they're saying, the images they're making. Never trust a man who misuses a metaphor. I, mm. I interviewed Ali Smith recently, 
and uh, she talks about this. She talks about words. If you really, really look at them, words tell you everything you need to know. Mm, that's yeah. brilliant. Yes, yes, mm. yes. But she should know. My word. Yeah. What a writer. Yes, absolutely. So, what, John, do you think are the preoccupations that will always have and always will run through your work? I'm not the person to ask, really, but uh, <laughs> ask, the, ask those few people who read me. The preoccupations, well, yes, place, it comes back to, and looking for meaning in life. Also, death, actually, and uh, what comes after, like poets since John Donne, you know, I'm a bit preoccupied with death and fascinated by it and the possibilities of, you know, afterlife or whatever. I'm a bit of a new ager in that respect. And I'm quite drawn to history and the way history repeats itself. Um, so, you know, as, as we talk now, there's a war going on in, in Ukraine and I find myself writing about that, but can't help thinking about earlier conflicts in, in writing about Ukraine. So history, particularly, does preoccupy me. Yes. And myth. And myth. Yeah. Well, one, one thinks of the Egyptian roots of, of your writing, and there's perhaps no civilization more preoccupied with the afterlife than That's right. yes. the Egyptians. Yeah. Yes. Which is probably one of the reasons why it, why it appealed to me. Makes me sound a very gloomy soul, but um, I, I think it's one of the. I mean, Yeats said, I keep coming back to Yeats, don't I? Uh, Yeats said that the only two subjects for poetry uh, are sex and the dead. And he, he had something when he said that. <laughs> I can write more about the dead than, than the other. That was John Greening in conversation with Caroline Sanderson. You can find out more about his work on the Royal Literary Fund website. This episode was recorded by Caroline Sanderson and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up next time, Royal Literary Fund writers explore the link between writing and the world beyond the desk. We hope you'll join us.